My name is Chris Pate. I'm the lead pastor here. In case you're new with us, thankful to have you. If you've been coming, we're so thankful to have you as well. As many of you know, we are in a series um, where it's not just a series, a message, and then we move on, but we are literally in a series of events even that we do along this message that is called The Gospel And. And we're hitting specific things like a couple weeks ago, we started with The Gospel And Mental Health. And how many of you guys appreciate and enjoyed the mental health? Kind of talk through that. I know it's hard. It's a hard subject, and we don't talk about it enough, or too many times the church might just throw some faith on that kind of thing. And uh, we're not anti-faith, but we think that everything should be integrated, not disintegrated in our lives, our body, our mind, our soul, our spirit. And we believe Christianity actually teaches that. And so we dilute the message of the gospel. Or just put it into the area of kind of the spirit man or when you go to heaven one day, instead of seeing the holistic impact of gospel lived out in our lives. And so we get the opportunity to talk through these things. Today, we are going to talk about the gospel and sexuality. I do want to warn you parents that this is PG-13 a little bit, okay? We won't be crass, but if you need to do earmuffs, you know, get ready maybe with certain words said, because we are talking about sexuality. That being said, in a couple weeks from uh, this, in a week from this next Friday, we will have another rap session. How many of you guys got to go to rap sessions? Anybody? Yeah? Great, great time to be able to discuss and dialogue around these topics. And so we'll be doing the same. We'll be discussing and dialogue arounding the topic of the gospel and sexuality coming up. So very excited about that. But without further ado, I want to make sure you have your phone out. We do encourage you to have your phone here in church. We want to trust you're not on Insta, uh, but you know, you're taking notes, you're diligent people, you love Jesus, but also if you will get your phone out and get this QR code on your phone because we are going to continue next week talking about the gospel and sexuality, but we want to answer your questions. And the beautiful thing about this, even if you're like, well, I'm not the kind of person that's going to ask questions, please get on this anyway. Uh, it is completely anonymous because you can go through like we did the first week, look at all the questions. And if you like them, the more likes they get, they'll go to the top and it will help us in making the decision, the hard decision of what to talk about because there's only so much time. That being said, please make sure you do that. We will have those questions ready, and we're, we're, we're not afraid to answer questions. The Bible says, come let us reason together. So let's talk about, maybe today, I'm, I'm, there's no way I could talk about all the subjects when it comes to sexuality. So you might even leave today frustrated, like, that's all we hit, because I'm going to hit very much a broad, general idea about sexuality. But next week, we're here for questions, we're here to talk, and especially the practical aspects of how to live this out in the real world. Got it? Everybody good? Yes. Great. I want to ask you a question as we get started today with the gospel and sexuality. How many of you guys had a bowl of cereal this morning? Anybody? Bowl of cereal? No cereal people? Is everybody like intermittent fasting or something? Are we more like egg people? Is that what it is? Anybody like cereal? Okay, praise the Lord. Okay, okay. Anybody fans of cornflakes? Okay, frosted flakes. More frosted flakes. All right, I see, I see. Just in case you didn't know, let me give you a little history lesson. You're welcome. 
Did you know that if you're eating cornflakes, you ever had cornflakes, it was developed with an effort to curb your impulses to have sex. You're like, dude, I'm glad I ate my Captain Crunch, yo. Okay. But it's true. Uh, It was developed by a physician in Battle Creek, Michigan, who wrote this, that neither the plague, and this was early 19th century, neither the plague nor war nor smallpox nor any other diseases have produced results so disastrous to humanity as the unhealthy habit of such things as masturbation and other forms of sexual activity. The solution? Cornflakes. His name was Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. He created a mixture of oatmeal. Here's his picture. Looks good. Oatmeal and cornmeal. He baked it into biscuits then ground the biscuits to bits and prescribed them in the belief that it would diminish the human sex drive, not only for singles, but also for married men, because he had an overall philosophy of sex bad. Because he believed the sexual activity, not just bad in and of itself, but he believed, as a doctor at the time, that it caused cancer, urinary disease, impotence, epilepsy, and insanity. And that masturbation specifically was the cause of acne, heart disease, atrophy of the testicles, insomnia, and vision impairment, blindness. Another man by the name of Charles William Post, if you know Post on cereals, took these same ideas. He spotted the commercial possibilities, capitalism at its best, and he started his own cereal business, and the cornflakes race was on. Let's go. First, there were post-toasties, and then, true, corn kinks. What the heck is a corn kink? I don't know. That doesn't sound (laughs) anti-sexual. Before it was over, and remember this was the late 1900s, there were 42 different kinds of cornflakes on the market. True story. But in the end, it was Kellogg's cornflakes that became king. We have certainly got a lot wrong about sex over the ages, haven't we? However, one thing we do see, one thing that stayed the same, is that it's constantly on our minds. Maybe now more than ever before, with the pornification of society, all the confusion on sexuality, gender norms. I mean, it's not abnormal to meet someone, especially I talked to my own daughter, people in their, her school who would proclaim certain things about their sexuality and their identity. Just talking their name or their change or I am, before you get to know my favorite cereal, you know that I'm polyamorous, non-binary, and bisexual. The idea of sexuality is very, very interesting in this time. And it's easy to say, man, it's just crazier than it's ever been, but history actually says, "Mm, different. Maybe the access is easier. But is it really worse than it's ever been? I think a lot of people have the mentality that 100 years ago, like Dr. Kellogg, everybody was just a Puritan. Everybody was just holy and 
everything was bad and sex was down and, and now we've progressed so much and we need to liberate ourselves. And yet, maybe, maybe, history is repeating itself in a lot of ways. It's interesting, when you see Christianity first bursting on the scene 2,000 years ago, the early Romans were amazed and absolutely astounded about Christianity in two particular areas of beliefs. Number one, they were absolutely amazed at the radical, as Jay just mentioned, the radical generosity of the Christians. But also, they were equally amazed, almost you would say perplexed, about the radical ideas of purity with the Christians. On the one hand, Christians believed in giving away large portions of their income to each other, as we see in the book of Acts, and to the poor. But also, they believed in no sex outside of the marriage covenant, this unity. And this was what exploded into Roman culture. The Romans thought, this is interesting though, think about this, if you read any history, they thought the Christians were strange. They actually called Christians atheists at the time because they only believed in one God instead of multiple, it's interesting. They not only thought they were strange, but particularly when it deals with sex, they concluded they're not healthy, it's not a healthy way to live. Does that sound familiar? Uh, or it's impossible. Heard the same things 2,000 years ago. Many of them responded with the generosity and the purity culture of Christians. As it swept the modern world, it perplexed them, but Christianity ended up sweeping the modern world and Rome became more of a Christian nation. How in the world? With those two things alone, could it sweep through and take over a culture that was extremely, extremely loose and liberal with sex? To the point, if you ever do a study on Ephesians, we've talked about this in our church, in Ephesus, where this letter is written, they would have the worship of Aphrodite or Dionysus, and they would take the statue and walk it all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea and dip it showing a sense of baptism and bring it back and then have displays of public orgies at the temple of Aphrodite. Hundreds of thousands of people would come. That was the culture. And yet, Christianity prevailed and changed the culture. So the question is, could it change our culture today in the same manner? With people that say, I don't even think that's right to wait till marriage or sex being just confined to that. I don't think it's healthy in our culture because you know, you're human and you need certain needs met. This is what I want to talk about because Christianity bursts on the scene and, and even today, churches that will make the same kind of stand or proclamation in view of the scripture and Bible a lot of them are looked at either weird, archaic, or even just out of touch with culture today. But the question is, what do you want? You, you want it just to change. 
So why, the question is like, why would the church stay with these archaic views? Because we've progressed so much to know that there's so, much, so many better ways to live and live your best life. But the problem is if we do say, okay, then let's just give in and change our teaching. Here's the problem. That goes against the very thing that Christianity is. Why? Because it's not just a teaching that we progress and evolve into. It is actually good news. It is not advice. It is news. So if we change the very core of the purity and the beauty of sex, then it might as well be like any other religion, any other just education, any other tech talk. And yet, that would be the very argument against Christianity if we walked into that. So here's the real question of what we want to tackle today. And again, this is broad, so I can't apologize for all the acts of the church that have gone wrong. I will say the church has gone wrong, not when they, they lived out truth, but when they would hone in on one area of sexuality and make it the demon and not look at everything else in order to live a pure life, and especially as they lost the grace of God for themselves. So here's a question. What is it that God says about sex? What's the concept of sex that's embedded into the heart of Christianity? What was even part of that original triumph over the ideologies of culture 2,000 years ago? Okay, so let's start. I'm going to give you six different points. Again, they're broad, but we're looking at a biblical perspective, not just what I believe or feel or think according to culture today. What does scripture say? Number one, we were created sexual. Here's what Genesis chapter one says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in this one single verse, we have three, really, if you just move on, you're just like, okay, whatever. But three amazing statements. Number one, the creator of the world made people, created people. We were, you and I, were created personally by God. We were fashioned, designed, and crafted like a master craftsman, knowing exactly what he wants each person to do. Number two, the Bible throws out this idea says we weren't just made and created, but we were made in the image of God. This is the Latin phrase we always use, imago Dei, imago Dei. You hear that? Imago Dei. That means the image of God. And we're able to respond and relate to God. So we're distinct from every other creation in that way. Because we have a soul and a flesh that, that not just a soul, but a spirit and a body that is integrated. And as I said earlier, everything we want to do in life is to disintegrate it, which is to separate it, instead of seeing how beautiful it is in one. Now, in certain sciences and certain things to be able to talk, we can talk about my mental health. We can talk about my body image or body structure or physiology. We can talk about our spiritual life. And we can separate those just to hone in on details. But please, please, please do not think the Bible separates you into that many things. You are integrated. And in fact, something's wrong when you're disintegrated. And our world has done an amazing job, and I say that in a bad way, of completely disintegrating ourselves from our body to say it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean anything. And I'm here to say, sexuality especially, as we end this message, you're going to see Christianity actually has a higher and more beautiful view of sexuality and the body than any other ideology out there. 
And that's the beauty of it. It gives dignity to the body. Not just makes it bad or dirty and let's just focus on your mental health and your, and your, and your spiritual health, but it's all integrated together. We're not just flesh and blood, though. We are also soul and spirit. And then the next thing he mentioned is this, search, this third statement, excuse me, that makes up who we are. It says human beings were not only made in the image of God, but made male and female. Now, some of you, we could have a lot of conversations about this next week. I'm sure it's going to be fire, like quest Q&A. Let's go. Because let's talk about why the roles, what this looks like. We can talk about how the church has gotten it wrong in so many ways, how people have gotten it wrong. But what does scripture say about the distinction and the beauty of both? And one thing I would say, it's really important to see the distinction, and it's actually helpful because it promotes right at the beginning a sense of beautiful diversity, right at the beginning. So that's number one, we're created. The next, sex is actually good. It's not just a good thing, it's a God thing. God created it. And this is helpful to think about because whether because we don't talk about it in church too much or at all, or because there's kind of this stigma, similar to mental health, that it's just bad, it's something we don't approach. The Bible actually paints a beautiful picture that it's good in Genesis. Chapter two, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God made a woman and brought her to the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. So right away, there you have it in the opening chapters of the Bible to describe how God created, but why God created, we have this real clear statement. And it's that God made man, Adam, to both want and need desire for each other. Not just emotionally, though, but also physically. It actually uses the word flesh. They were one flesh, not just one mentality or one emotion, but flesh, physically, sexually, and intimately. Now, intimacy is more than just physical, but it is a part of the physicality, which we know. Author Philip Yancey gives kind of a really cool, interesting reflection on this idea of the body and human sexuality and physiology by saying this, having studied some anatomy, I marvel at God laboring over the physiology of sex, the soft parts, the moist parts, the millions of nerve cells sensitive to pressure and pain, yet also capable of producing pleasure. The intricacies of erectile tissue, the economical and ironical combination of organs for excretion and Reproduction, the blending of visual appeal and mechanical design. As the zoologists remind us, in comparison with every other species, the human is bountifully endowed. Different, created. But sex, again, is not bad. The Bible actually points to that is good. And did you catch that last line in Genesis that we read? The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. It's not because they had a really good keto diet or six weeks of CrossFit, right? It's because under God's design, it's good. He made it good in the right constraints, in the right way. He made it beautiful. He made it great. He's a giver. 
It's not something cheap. It's not dirty. It's not sordid or immoral. It was and is a gift. Let me give you some more fun scriptures. Proverbs 5, let your fountain be blessed. Remember, we read the Bible literarily, not literally. So it's not talking about an actual fountain. Okay. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And of course, you can't mention biblical reference without a little song of Solomon. <laughs> Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Many of you are like, no, it's not. <laughs> it is in the right sense and context and true, beautiful, original intent and intimacy. It is. That's why all the songs we sing are about forever love, eternal love. While the king was on his couch, Solomon, Song of Solomon 1, 12, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Try that one next time. You can have a little pillow talk. <laughs> How about this one? I like this one. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a, a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Don't read the Bible literally. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ooze that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. In other words, you got all your teeth, girl. You hot. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Built in rows of stone, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Please don't just read the Bible literally. Isn't that a beautiful woman? You ain't like the other girls. God created sex as good. And it defines some of these even sexual behaviors. Not as bad, not as gross or evil like some of us have come to believe. And I think that's part of the enemy's strategy is to think you, make you think that God thinks it's gross. So then what are you going to do? If you're looking for intimacy, you would rather have intimacy in the wrong way than no intimacy. And yet God says, no, there is a right way. It's beautiful. And I created it in the right context, just like I've used the example several times. I'm a guitar player, and guitar, when I know that it's crafted and made for a reason, and I know if I just look at the guitar, I didn't know what it was about, I didn't know how to string it, I would just look at it, and you could use that guitar to hammer in a nail, and it would hammer in the nail, but it would destroy the instrument and the function for which the beauty comes out of it. That the creator is the one that says, this is what it is, and someone plays it, and you go, oh, it's so much better than a hammer. It's used in the right way. It's beautiful. This is God's truth and his love and his gift. So what is it for? It's for two things. Procreation, number one. He made us sexual creatures for procreation and, not or, and intimacy. So let's talk about procreation. Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said... Be fruitful and increase in number. This is the basis, foundation for family life. A man and a woman joined together with their sexuality and subsequently sexual life producing children. 
Now, we could talk a lot about singleness and where Christianity comes in and brings so much value to singleness as well. And the church doesn't talk about that very often, but hopefully we will get to that next week. But today we're just looking in general. Intimacy is the second one. Not just procreation, which is getting our job done, gotta have kids. But intimacy too, because it's a glorious gift. Let's go back to Genesis. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God made a woman and brought her to the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Our sexuality fills a relational vacuum, according to scripture, of intimacy. And again, a high view of this in the right context. A man, according to this, needs a woman. There's a, there's a need there. There's a need for a woman and a man. Again, in New Testament language and in gospel language, it can be fulfilled within community, and then God gifts people with the ability to not marry or to be celibate, and it's a beautiful gift, just like the gift of marriage is a beautiful gift. But in this context and at the very beginning, how it was created, God made that helper, and sexuality was this intimate place of physical, spiritual, emotional renewal and intimacy that is beautiful. Paul talks about this actually in 1 Corinthians. He says this, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? So now he's saying this oneness is not just when you fully committed to someone, but when you have the act of sex, more happens than just a physical release, according to scripture. For as is written, the two will become one flesh. The, the, the message, not a translation, but paraphrase. I like how he says it. Eugene Peterson says this. There is more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. The two become one, body and soul. Let's read this whole thing that Paul says starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. A lot of you guys, a lot of us need to hear that. You're like, I'm free in Jesus, I can do whatever I want. It's like, but that's not beneficial necessarily. Like if you want all the freedom, you might end up in jail because you do whatever you want. That's not free. And he says, all things are lawful for me. And he's talking like, this is what people say. But I will not be dominated by anything. Ooh. Wow. Just because I can do everything, I need to understand if I give in to something too much and over desire, it will enslave me. That's a, that'll preach. And it did. It's the Bible. Okay, 13. <laughs> food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, talking about Jesus, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. That means sex outside of the covenant marriage. 
Every other sin in a person a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So now he just made that a different kind of distinction. Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? If you know anything about their mindset of the temple of the Holy Spirit, this is astonishing reality. Whom you have from God, you are not your own. It's quiet. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Look what he says here. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, what does that mean? He's talking about people who say, and, and, and today you hear it, especially when you talk about it, it's not healthy to live like that. People will say, hey, food is meant for the stomach and sex is meant for the body. When you get hungry, you have food. When you feel sexy, you have sex. What's the big deal? Anybody ever heard that? You probably thought it. Okay. But see, Paul's actually coming against that mentality. And that's what a lot of the New Testament is, is how do we practically live out the gospel? These letters to the church, that's what he's talking about. And he says, so flee sexual immorality. Earlier, he talks about how good it is in the marriage bed, how beautiful it is. Again, it's not gross, but it's also, we got to be careful not to deify it and make it God. Make sex everything. That's as dangerous of an extreme when God says it's not gross, it's not God, it's good. It's very different. But let's say you go to the doctor. Talking about food, appetite, sex being a similar appetite. If you go to your doctor, your doctor says this. Your, your, your trouble right now is the way in which you've been eating for the past 30 years. Like you're going to have a heart attack any minute. So you've got to radically change the way you eat. Like all these foods that you want, you're accustomed to, and you've desired, and you've just you let yourself go. Like if you go to the doctor and he's saying your arteries are clogged, everything, you're going to die if you keep eating that way. So the first time you go out, it's your birthday. You know, that always happens when you're like, your doctor's like, eat better, and it's your birthday. It always happens, right? Or the church says, we're going to have a fast, and like, you go to work, and everybody's giving out free food. It always happens. So you get this big steak and like butter and lobster and everything stuffed on it. And then they have this big baked potato with sour cream. And you put bacon on anything and it's better. I don't care. Amen. That's right. That's the first amen I got from you, Jay. I'm going to talk to you about that later. <laughs> and you say, ah, I mean, this is just, I'm going to eat it anyway. Like I desire it. I want it. I'm going to eat it. So you sit down and you eat it right away. And of course you don't all of a sudden taste it. And you're like, oh, it's killing me. This is horrible. You go, this is good. It doesn't taste like poison, but the reality is it is poison. Your appetite, if you're this person, right, is completely out of accord with the thing you actually need. So the Bible says, this is what's happening with sex. The reason for and because unlike hunger, like your appetite for food, sex is this beautiful, glorious thing And it gets us as close to the ultimate reality, but it's just a signpost of ultimate reality. So we make it the ultimate, everything in our culture, sex sells, like everything. This is how we're going to get the ultimate reality. But then you have it and it's not ultimate reality because it's only a signpost of what true, beautiful intimacy looks like, which Paul says, you are one with the Lord. There's an intimacy. 
It's interesting. But if you have an example of a, like this rabid, crazed, insane, disordered, disordered horse that is going rabid and crazy, or you have a rabid, crazy, insane mouse, both of the equally insane, insane, which would you rather deal with? Some of you are scared of the mouse, but you would choose the mouse over the crazy horse that's disordered and all over the place from its desires or something wrong with it. Because the truth is, the greater the essence of the thing, the more dangerous it is when it's disordered. You would take the mouse and not the horse any day. And I'm sure there's other appetites and desires that we get out of order. And really, that's all sin is. It's disordered loves. I've put this ahead of God. I've put this ahead of my family. I've put my work life here. And I've disordered my love where I'm all in here. And it ruins the rest of our life. We get off. And when you do that with sex, because the power of it, of what it could be, it can ruin everything. And scripture makes it that crucial. Now, don't just hear sex, bad, bad, bad. But there is a danger to sex that we have to be aware of. I like this example um, C.S. Lewis gives. It's a little archaic example because he's talking about from the 1940s. But he says this, can you imagine if you came to a country where you're getting to know people? You come into this new place and you're trying to figure out some of the customs of this country, how they do things. And you find out that when young men go away to college, the first thing they do when they get into their college dorm and when they have like finally freedom from their parents and the eyes of the outsider, the first thing they do is they put up these incredibly big, beautiful posters of apple pie, spinach, and hot dogs. They look so succulent. They're up close. And when, when you photograph the food, you know, they'll put like water around it. It looks like food porn, right? Like it's just incredible that he didn't have that terminology. We do now. <laughs> then they, they go around to each other's rooms and they look at them and, and, and what would you say about a country like that? And you're just like, what are these people? Why are they staring at hot dog pictures? <laughs> he says, what if you went to a place where you found people paid a lot of money to go into these little clubs? And in the clubs, everyone sat around a stage and the lights were low and there was this bumping, grinding music and everybody paid a lot of money and they came in and they would just watch. And then out in the center, somebody would slowly kind of bit by bit start pulling in time to the music, the curtains and the stage, and they would pull the cover off and it was a hamburger. Everybody says, wow. And every night they go out and they do that again. Check out that bacon, Jay. (laughs) What would you say? Here's what you would say. Is either this is a country where the people are starving. Like they don't have food. But then you'd go, well, why would you treat food like that? What's going on? Either it's a place where people are starving or it's a place where their appetite is severely disordered and out of whack or both. A lot of times this is the argument, like we don't talk about sex enough, so now there's this liberation because we we stifled it. But now that we've, we've liberated it, you would think it would be healthy and everything would be great. It's not true, it's disordered. Somebody came across 
came down from another planet and they didn't have the entire lives and the education, and the minds and the sexual appetite disordered by sin that we would have, they would probably look around and C.S. Lewis says, you, you would probably commit somebody because this sexual appetite has gotten out of hand, has gotten disordered. Paul says, sex is a marvelous thing. It's a glorious thing. But then he says, flee sexual immorality. Don't be mystified by it. And, and, and the church doesn't say, hush it up. Again, make it gross. Don't talk about it. It says it's beautiful, but in the right setting and context. Sex outside of marriage, and this is redeeming sex, trivializes and then destroys emotional union that it was intended to provide as a complement to the lifelong commitment of marriage. Jesus would go as far as to say pornography as well. What you look at, you're not just, uh, I'm not tasting the menu, I'm just looking at the menu, but you tell your wife about that in a committed relationship and it's a little bit more than just a look because sex is more than just physical, it's spiritual, it's emotional. However, it can be redeemed. Amen? Sex can be redeemed. Your sexual health, just like your mental health, can be redeemed. And I would say Jesus wants to come for your sexual health as well. Not because he's a weird God who's peeking in on your bedroom. Some people say that. I've heard Bill Maher argue that. Why does God care? but because he cares about you and he knows, first of all, what healthy sex looks like in the right environment. Just like a fire in the right context is beautiful, but outside of a fireplace in the right construct will burn your house down. And God comes in, he's not, I'm just interested in all your weird stuff. He's going, I'm interested in the healthy whole you. I'm interested in the best for you. And what's interesting is we all want this. We really do desire it. I read an article recently about a count of a wedding that was observed from an intimate friend of the bride and groom. And here's what he observed. The bride wore a white gown and a veil covered her face. The groom slipped a ring on the bride's finger. After a lavish reception, the newlyweds flew off on their honeymoon destination. Yet, the person attending the wedding, this person that's writing, had this commentary. He wondered why they even bothered. For example, the white wedding gown symbolizes the purity of the bride. And yet everyone in attendance knew that the bride and groom had been living together for three years. The ceremony took place in a church, even though the two were agnostic. When the minister invited the groom to kiss the bride, everyone laughed. They all knew he had already been sleeping with her. So it seemed silly for someone to be giving him permission to kiss her. The couple promised to stay married till death do us part, but just in case, they had signed a binding prenuptial agreement. As for the honeymoon tradition to start a couple's sex life, it was the case. We've been there, done that. And with the average wedding cost of $30,000 plus, He's wondering, why do people bother with the rituals? Why don't they just go to the courthouse, skip the rituals that are obviously empty? It's 
God would call it, the scripture would call it a form of godliness denying the power. But here's the reason why. God's original design is too powerful to ignore, even if we try. Like we know it on the inside of us that there's something more. I mean, you watch even some of the most grotesque shows and you'll have somebody that is attached to somebody merely for sexual reason while the other person's trying to detach, but they want to get married at the end of the day. Like they want that commitment. They desire that lifelong covenant that somebody says till death, till even in sickness, like I want you. And that comes even chemically with oxytocin and vasopressin comes to bond us, to connect us through sexual act. And it's meant to be more than just a physical thing, but full intimacy. Now, we could end right now, and those of you that have struggled or are struggling with any of this right now, you could just walk away and be like, why did we not go to Lakewood this morning? Dad, gum. <laughs> no offense to Lakewood. I'm sure they do some great things. But honest. Is the Christian message, you're bad, be better? This is the gospel and. What is the gospel? We've clearly written it out, and I want you to memorize it by the end of this series. The gospel is the good news. It's not advice. It's not a good teaching. It's news, something that has happened. That God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. We should have died. He did it in our place Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he is the son of God and offering this gift of salvation to all who repent, change the way you think and act, and believe this gospel. We get in today and you just feel really convicted and the devil loves to use that to make you go, see, God doesn't want you, church hates you, more church hurt, here we go. Or, or, you hear in the midst of truth, and the beauty and the high privilege of sex, you also get the gospel of grace. In our staff, we have this saying in our staff, because we're like any other business where we have staff evaluations, we want our staff to get better and do better, but also we're a church, so we have grace. So we have this saying that we say, high standards, high grace. High standards, high grace, because we believe you can have both. Because scripture says Jesus was filled, full of, not half this, half that, full of both truth and grace. He's not afraid to tell you the truth, that's justice right there. A God of justice, but also a God of grace who this gospel says came in and said, truth, you're evil, you're bad, you're disordered. Grace, I'll take your place. And it's that gospel is why we sing more of you, God. Like you walk in this room, you're like, why do you want more of God if you don't know the gospel? What has he done? He looked at me evil and a wretch, took my place. He didn't just say, be better, be taller. See, that's high standards with low grace. Be really, really good, be this tall, I'll accept you. Be perfect, be pure, you'll have a great marriage. It's not what he says. That's too low of grace, that's religiosity. That's, that's the people Jesus loved to rebuke were the religious leaders that wouldn't lift a finger to help somebody else. 
but put more and more on them. And, but then on the flip side in our culture, we have kind of, we're regressing into this Christianity that is like low to no standards and just all grace. God loves you. He just wants your good, your truth, your rules. Like God came and did everything so you can do whatever you want. And I'm telling you without truth and justice, that's not a good God. Because you just walk into the flames of your own disordered desires. Can we be a culture that has high grace and high standards? And I would say only the gospel can produce that. Why? Because of what Jesus did now, not to get to his level, but out of just merely the thankfulness and appreciation. Man, how can I not love a God that would be naked and unashamed on a cross, give his body. How can I not give my body as a living sacrifice? This is the message, the news of the gospel and the impetus as to why I could stand before you and say, be pure. And I can also stand before you and say, if you haven't been, God can grace you, empower you to do it because he accepts you. As I like to say around here, everyone is accepted and expected it to grow. Grace, standards. And we of all people should have the highest standards because we know how awesome God is.